morning, church. It is a blessing to be able to gather with you online this morning. And so if you have the Word of God, would you join me in Acts chapter 2. And we are continuing through our study in the book of Acts. And uh, it's going to be a great day in the Word this morning. And it has been uh, just a wild week uh, we have experienced as a family, I think, everything possible involving snow. We have played in the snow. We have sledded in the snow. We have built snowmen. We have sledded. We have eaten snow ice cream like every day. E- each time I see my kids outside, they are either eating snow or they're licking an icicle. Like, we have done it all uh, with the snow. And, uh, and my kids, uh, for, for, you know, for, for their raising up, they don't really have a lot of memories of, of snow uh, in that we moved here from Florida. And so uh, I thought it was my responsibility. One of my parental responsibilities is to uh, train my children up. I want my children to be wise, not gullible. And so uh, on one day, I think it might have been the first day we got out, in it, uh, I picked up a little snow in my hand, and I began to mold uh, a little thing called a snowball. And I said to my kids, I was like, hey guys, y'all come here, check this out. This is going to be amazing. You've got to see this. And as soon as they got close enough, I just said, psych, and I turned and I threw the snowball at my children. And, and I do kind of feel bad about that, but, uh, but we got to train them up, right? we got to train them up. And so maybe you experienced a little bit of that uh, over this week, uh, but you probably maybe have uh, either said the word psych or been on the receiving end of the word psych. And the whole thought behind that is there's something that you really want, something that you desire, something that's going to be amazing. And just when you think it's going to be yours, you hear the word psych. And I'm just so thankful that God doesn't psych out (laughs) His children, that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is true. Before Christ ascended to the Father after His resurrection in Acts 1, He told His his apostles there, He said, listen, go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait there because in not many days from now, the Holy Spirit is going to baptize you. You're going to be baptized with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And you're going to receive power to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so there the early church is gathered in this upper room. And God did not tell them, psych, now just playing, just kidding. No, He delivered and was faithful to deliver on His promise that He would send the Holy Spirit. Now we see in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit... It's going to come to work and move in a way like never before. But it's also important to know that the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, has been at work for all eternity and all creation. Even Genesis chapter 1, the second verse of the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That in the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit would fill and empower individuals, whether that was kings whether that was prophets, whether that was specific individuals, and typically His Spirit would come upon them, empower them, for it would be a specific purpose, for maybe a specific time, and then depart. But now, in the, the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that 
for all believers, God gifts us with the promise, His presence, the Holy Spirit, to not only empower us, but to indwell in us. In Acts chapter 2, we see a birthday like never before. This is the birthday of the church. And there is a theme that is going to run throughout the message this morning. But it's this, is that the promise is for all. The promise is for all. We're going to hear that all through this passage. The promise, the Holy Spirit, is for all. So let's jump in. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, the Bible says this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And so, Pentecost, it's important to to know that, that Pentecost is actually a Greek name for a Jewish festival that devout Jews had been celebrating for centuries. That, that Pentecost is the Greek name for the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of First Fruits. And so, so it's important to know that on this particular day, you have devout Jews from all over Palestine and even beyond that are gather, gathering to celebrate this Feast of Harvest. Now, there were three festivals that, that devout Jews would, would make their way to Jerusalem, the mountain city, to celebrate. There were three. One was Passover. Passover uh, was celebrated by Jews for centuries, celebrating and remembering and worship God for the great miracle of the Old Testament. And that was that uh, when Jews were under Egyptian bondage and slavery that God gave direction to His people through His servant Moses. Listen, I'm going to deliver you, but here's what you need to do. You need to find a lamb that that is without spot and it's without blemish. And you're going to take this lamb and you're going to slaughter this lamb. And you're going to take the blood from this, this lamb without spot or blemish and you're going to place the blood on the doorpost of the home. And when... When God comes and brings His judgment on evil and sin of Egypt, whatever home has the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost, that that God's judgment is going to pass over those who are under the blood. So don't miss this. Centuries later, in Jerusalem, during Passover, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the God-Man, The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The only one who is without spot or blemish is crucified on a cruel cross. His blood shed for all of those who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Him so that there can be forgiveness of sin. But not just forgiveness, but so God's wrath would not come upon those who are under the blood and rescued by the blood. God's timing is divine. And so you see that Christ was crucified as the true Passover lamb at, Pente- uh, excuse me, at, at Passover. And then 50 days later, it's Pentecost. That's actually what the word Pentecost means. It means 50th. So 50 days after the, the crucifixion of Christ, God is going to pour out His Spirit at the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of first fruits, because the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of all that await believers in eternity. Paul says it like this in Romans 8.23. He says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, 
the redemption of our bodies. And so this gifting of the indwelling presence, the Holy Spirit, is a taste of the glory and the presence of God that we will experience in eternity. It's incredible. Incredible. And so in verse 2, the Bible says that, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it, felt, it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. couple observations through this text. The first is that the promise has come. God has delivered on His promise. The Holy Spirit coming was audible. The Holy Spirit coming was visible. The coming of the Spirit in this way was incredible, miraculous. The Bible says that the sound was like a mighty rushing wind. So, so this, this means it, it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. doesn't mean that tornadic winds swept through Jerusalem on that day or even in that upper room. But it sounded like it. You think about the roar. A 747 taken off. You think of this incredible sound. I know many of you have experienced tornadic winds. Think about those winds. I know just a few years ago, uh, we were hunkered down in our home down in Florida. And Hurricane Irma in 2017, the winds were ferocious. And the eye of the hurricane literally passed over our house. It was unreal. But there was this incredible sound, the Holy Spirit coming the promise has come and so it sounds like a roaring rushing mighty wind but it was not only audible but it was visible it was excuse me it was it was visible and it was audible and divided tongues the bible says as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them this is important it rested on each of them God would manifest His presence. You look at the Scripture throughout the Old Testament. God would manifest His presence through fire. You think about Moses and the burning bush. You think about God giving His commands to His servant Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And thunder and quaking and lightning and fire. You think of God leading and shepherding His people, Israel, through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. And so Jews would recognize this, this visible manifestation of God's presence as the holiness of God. And so fire gives both warmth and comfort, and it also gives light. And so the Holy Spirit has come to illuminate hearts and minds according to the truth of His Word and according to Christ as Messiah, as the one true Messiah. This is an incredible moment in the life of the church and God is pouring out His Spirit on His church. And the same is true today in this church age that we live in is that for all who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone, that God gives Himself, His presence, the promise of the Holy Spirit to empower and indwell every believer 
But this word says that they were all filled and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So God gifted them with this gift of speaking. Now it's important to understand that this word, if you dig into the language, the original word is dialectos. It's the same word we get the word dialects. And so what, what the Spirit is gifting them and equipping them to speak, these are known, understandable languages. That this is recognizable and understandable. And they're speaking. They're speaking. And so the promise has come. But this promise is for all people. Mention we're going to see this all through this text. But the promise is for all people. The Bible says in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, they've all gathered to the mountain city to celebrate the feast of first fruits. Pentecost. Verse 6 says, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And that is not a compliment, by the way. We'll circle back to that. Verse 8 says, And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? He goes on to say in verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Like they are hearing the mighty works of God in their language and they're like, who are these Galileans? Like Galileans were seen as ignorant people. They were seen as uneducated people. They were seen as good old boys, rednecks. They were seen as people who were even less than the sophisticated folks who have made their way to Jerusalem. I think about how this plays itself even in today. I, I thought about a show, I don't even know if it's on anymore, but The Turtle Man. He was this guy that lived in the, in the Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky. I think his show was on Animal Planet. And, and so in my mind, I just think like The Turtle Man speaking Portuguese. Or, or I think of like Uncle Si, if you're a Duck, duck Dynasty person. And I think of Uncle Si just rattling off some Mandarin or something. It's like... Like, this is incredible what is happening. What is happening in this place? And verse 12 says, And all, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? These Galileans speaking of the mighty works of God. Verse 13, But others mocking said, They are filled with wine. In other words, they must be drunk. These mockers, these guys must be Drunk. I don't know about you, but I don't know drunk people who are speaking fluent languages. Or even then, speaking about the mighty works of God. Peter's going to address that in just a moment. But it's important to know this. That any time God's truth is presented, is that there, were, there, there's going to be all kinds of different receptions. Even as you listen this morning, we're opening the Word of God, the truth of God's Word, and, and there's going to be a response. We're going to talk about that, but, but people can be receptive, people can be open, people can be hungry for the truth. There can also be those who, who, who are processing and, and thinking and chewing on it, but there are also those who mock. 
There are those who mockers tend to typically attack people without ever taking the time to know the facts. There are always going to be mockers. The Bible actually, uh, I believe, warns. It's a warning in Scripture that there is a wide path that leads to destruction. And many are on it. And these mockers are those who reject the Bible. And Psalm 14.1 says that they're fools. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. So this multitude has gathered. And now Peter, boldly and courageously and filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, stands up, verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifts up his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. It is 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what we are about to have a window view into this morning is the first sermon ever preached by a preacher man. <laughs> a fisherman turned preacher man. And, and, and most preachers I know, if they think back to their first sermon, they kind of want to forget about it <laughs> a little bit. I, I remember the first time I preached, I, I had taught in, in student environments and taught Sunday school and things like that. But as a seminary student down in New Orleans, um, we would get called to, to go out to these local churches and, and preach on Sundays. And so uh, I was invited to, to preach at a church uh, down in Louisiana. And I was humbled and honored and absolutely. And, and so I get in my car. It felt like hours. But literally this church was located. I took a picture of it. The end of Bayou Road. Like we are in the Bayou all the way. Small, tiny little church. And I walk into the church that morning, and, and they, they just look at me, and they're like, okay, so what songs are you going to be leading us in this morning? <laughs> and I, I was like, what? You, you want me to leave music for you? And they're like, yeah, like, um, they say, here's a hymnal, so you just, you know, pick out some songs, and you let us know. So in my brain, I'm, brain, I'm like, amazing grace, where is it? Let's go for it. But I noticed the piano there. It's a super small little church, a little piano. I said, hey, is there someone that can play the piano? Because in my mind, I'm like, they can drown out my voice because I can't sing at all. And, and they're like, oh, no, like the, the piano's ruined. A rat got in there and just tore everything up. So you're just going to sing for us this morning, and then you're going to preach. It's like, okay, all right. And so, and so then I start, like, kind of make it through the music, start preaching. And out from the back, there were probably about eight people there that morning. This guy comes in, I'll never forget, sunglasses, bright purple jacket. And he walks about, about what felt like five feet in front of me, stands up on the pew there, and then sits on the top of the back of the pew, sunglasses on, and stares at me for the rest of the message. And all through it, he's raising his hands and he's asking questions, which is great. But it was just wild. It's like... I kind of want to forget that first <laughs> sermon ever, but, but, but it, it was unforgettable. This sermon is the first sermon Peter ever preaches, and it is unforgettable. And I'm so thankful for Peter, and this is a great encouragement for us, that he, with God, our failure is not final. That he denied Christ three times, but in John 21, Christ uh, restores Peter, and he tells him, listen, your failure is not final. You're going to feed my sheep. And that's exactly what he does. And I love what Peter does. He begins to preach. And he begins by quoting the prophet Joel. In other words, he goes straight to Scripture. 
He preaches scripture and he quotes from memory Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. We're going to be tempted a lot of times to, to seek advice and see what people think or people feel. But what's important is we go to the Word. This is what Peter does. He goes straight to the Word and he quotes the prophet, the one who they would have been reading while they are gathered here for this feast. And he says this, he quotes the prophet Joel in verse 17, And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. What Peter is preaching, he is saying the pouring out of, of the Spirit, God's Spirit on His people, the prophecy that we've been reading about, this prophecy that we have looked to be fulfilled, what Peter is saying, he's saying that prophecy, that prophecy is this. That prophecy is this. This is what you are seeing. This is what you're seeing. This is what you're hearing. This is what you're experiencing. God pouring out His Spirit on His church. Now for Jews with this prophecy, they would have equated the pouring out of God's Spirit with with, with the end of time and God setting up His kingdom, His eternal kingdom. And so for them, they just saw this as hand in hand. But what Peter is helping them understand is, listen, God is pouring out His Spirit. And we are in the end times. Okay, From the ascension of Christ to the second coming of Christ, we are in the latter days. We are in the end times. We're in the church age. And so what Peter is saying is this pouring out of the Spirit is the beginning of of the return. It's the beginning of the eternal kingdom that will come. And so they're hearing and they're listening. And in verse 21, he wraps up the quote of Joel. And he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. This promise is for all. This promise is for you. This promise is for them. This promise is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. So the promise has come, the promise is for all, but we also see that the promise calls for a response. The promise calls for a response in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, so he's just quoted the prophet Joel, men of Israel, hear these words. And his preaching goes from the truth and authority of divinely inspired and authored prophecy of Joel, pointing and takes it directly to Jesus. All preaching must be focused on Jesus Christ. All preaching must lead to Christ. And here's what he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he's preaching to these Jews and he's saying, Hey, you know those mighty works? You know those wondrous works? Christ did those before your eyes. You saw them. In John chapter 3, we see Christ is having a conversation in the evening hours with a, a ruler of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. 
And in John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You want proof? Look at the wondrous miracles, the mighty works before your eyes. The Christ is the Messiah. In verse 23 of Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This, these couple verses here are such a gift to us. Because I think sometimes as believers, we try to get our heads and our minds around the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But here in this passage, Peter actually lays it out for us. Is that the God-man to come and pay the price for our sin, to be forgiven, to be restored, to have peace with God. This was all set and determined by the good will, sovereign will of Almighty God. That the death, burial, and resurrection was the sovereignty of God. And yet also, you're responsible. The responsibility of man. I had one, one teacher once tell me, you know, some folks lean all in on the sovereignty of God to the rejection of, of man's willful responsibility. And others lean so into man's willful responsibility that they discount the sovereignty of God. And so what this scripture teaches us is that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are both the reality that we live in. And so here it is, Peter's preaching, and he's saying, God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pains of death because it was not responsible or not possible for him to be held by it. God, man, Jesus Christ, gloriously raised from the dead. Not possible that he could be held by death. And then what Peter does, and he says this, he says, for David, in verse 25, for David says concerning him. This is what King David says about the Messiah, about Christ. He says, he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Listen to this. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. End quote. And he says this in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. I hope that we will have the opportunity in the years to come to take a trip to Israel. It's incredible. Life-changing experience. And you can go, we will go and we will visit the, the tomb of King David. You can go, you can see it, you can visit it. And in other words, what the psalmist is teaching us is the body of David saw corruption. 
But he's prophesying about the Messiah, the Holy One, who does not see corruption. Verse 30 says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses you need more proof look at the mighty wondrous work the wonders the works of almighty God that you see and saw we're witnesses to the resurrection of Christ from the dead you want proof the resurrection was visible the resurrection was physical and it was incredible verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, the pouring out of His Spirit, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is what you're seeing and this is what you're hearing. And then He quotes one more Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110.1, and says this, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool and David was not talking about himself and a Middle Eastern father would never call his own son Lord he is referring to King Jesus the Messiah the only one who can give salvation and forgiveness of sin and peace with God verse 16 excuse me verse 36 let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. And this Jesus whom you crucified. And then the Bible says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Like they're hearing all this. They're taking it in. They are, they're, 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 their hearts, their minds are being illuminated by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Presenting Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah. That He was crucified for our sins, that He was placed in the tomb, and that He resurrected from the dead. And the Bible says that when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, John 14 through 16, if you get a chance to, to read through that, kind of teaches us about the promised Holy Spirit. But listen to what the Bible says in John 16, 7 and 8. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That these listeners in the multitudes are hearing the truth of God's Word. And how Christ is the Messiah. The only one who can grant forgiveness and grace and peace with God. And eternal life. The one who was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. And they were cut to the heart because they knew that their sin was responsible for the crucifixion of King Jesus. 
that when Christ went to the cross, that He took on our guilt, He took on our shame, and He took on His sin, and they got it. May we understand that Christ was crucified, the Lamb without blemish, for our sin. It was our sin. And they're listening to this, and they said to Peter, verse 37, the rest of the verse says, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Like they didn't even wait for an invitation. They're like, what do we need to do? What they're saying is, what do I need to do to get right with God? What do I need to get right with God? You may be listening in online this morning. And it's perhaps even as you're listening to the word. And the Holy Spirit is, is illuminating the word to your heart and to your mind. And you know things just aren't right between you and God and what these guys are saying they're like tell me what I must do to be right with God and verse 38 Peter said to them repent repent change your mind change your thinking it's a change of direction repent and through repentance you are turning to God and placing your faith and trust in him and him alone Peter said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think it's important here because some may use this as a proof text to say, see right there, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But the problem with that is, is that to believe that would contradict everything the New Testament teaches about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you dig into that word for, it's a Greek word that means ice, and it actually has eight different um, interpretations. And so one of those is that for or ice can mean with respect to or with reference to. So this makes sense in light of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ, but that we are baptized with respect to what Christ has done in forgiving our sins. Verse 39, for the promise. I love this. Listen to this. So encouraging. This promise, the promise is for you. It's for your children. And it's for all who are far off. And everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words. So we just get a snapshot of the sermon. But he says, and with many other words, he, Peter, bore witness And continue to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can't you just hear happy birthday? Can't you just hear the party, the heavenly party that's going on? And what we see is we see 3,000 spiritual babies born were new creations in Christ. And we see the birthday of the church and it's happening right before our eyes. New life in Christ. So as we look at at these first 41 verses of chapter 2, there is a lot to soak in. And there's a lot to pray through. But I would just, just share a few observations and applications in light of what we have just read. And the first would simply be this, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. 
May we not allow circumstances or our timeline or the way we think things should all play out to distort this incredible truth that God is faithful. He's faithful to His promise. He keeps His promise. He didn't say, hey, I got this incredible promise. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Nah, never mind, changed my mind on that one. Not going to happen. No, God delivers. He delivers on His promise every single time. And so whether you find yourself right now listening from a hospital room, or you find yourself listening in and you're, you're, you've got pipes that are busted and, and damaged from all the, the crazy weather that we've experienced or whether everything seems just fine or you're working from home wondering if you're ever going to get back in the office and you're like all of these things. Listen, in all of that, be encouraged, church. God is faithful to His promise. He is true. He is right. And He delivers. And He's faithful. His promise is for all be encouraged in that and then not only that it could be that we are reminded once again that why did why did God give his spirit Jesus told him in Acts 1 he's like listen you're going to be baptized in the spirit you're going to be identified with me and and you're going to you're going to receive power when my holy spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the ends of the earth God has called us to be a witness not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, be a witness with your neighbors. Yes, be a witness with your coworkers. Yes, be a witness uh, wherever your, your foot may tread and whatever divine opportunities that come. But even being a witness in your own home. It's your witness to the power of God in the gospel. And so, God, if there is any way that I'm grieving your spirit in my life, any way that I'm quenching your spirit in my life, God, reveal and repent. I repent and I turn and I trust. And that God would empower us, and He has empowered us, to make His name famous in our homes and all around. And then it could be that you are listening in and maybe you don't have a relationship with God. And I just want to remind you with verse 39. I love this. Acts 2, verse 39. The Bible says this, the promise is for you. The promise is for you. And it's for your children. And listen to this, it's for all who are far off. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. It's for you. It's for your children. It's for all those who are far off. You may be listening and I, I heard a great Chip Ingram just gave a, a great illustration about folks who just feel distant from God. They feel too far from God. And here's what he says. He says, maybe you're here. Maybe you are. You're listening in this morning. And you say, you know what? I feel like I'm in a, I feel like I'm in a 10, I just feel like I'm in a 10 foot pit. That there's just, there's things in my life that I know aren't honoring areas of obedience that God is calling me to. And, and you're just like, I just feel like, I, like I'm in this 10-foot pit to which, to which the illustration goes. Well, guess what? There's a rope that is 11 foot, and the rope is called grace. And by God's grace, He offers it to you, and you wrap yourself in His grace, and you repent and you trust Him, and He will bring forgiveness and healing. And so maybe you're like, man, not, I'm not in a 10-foot hole. I feel like I'm in a 100-foot hole. 
Like in my private life or made public, if people around me knew what was going on in my life, I just feel like I'm in a hundred foot pit. Well, guess what? You're in luck. Because there is a rope, and that rope is called grace. And it is, guess what? A hundred and one feet long. It's long enough to reach you. And that you would wrap yourself in God's undeserved grace. And that you would repent and trust Him and find forgiveness and rest and healing for your soul. You could say, man, a hundred foot, that's nothing. I, I am one thousand, I feel like I'm in a one thousand foot pit. You don't understand. Like, I'm one of the mockers in the story. I hear the truth of God. I have made fun of believers. I have, I have persecuted. I have, I've, you just, whatever it is, you just feel like you're, you're in a thousand foot. Listen to this. What does the Bible say? Verse 39, the promise is for you, it's for your children, and it's all who are far off. And that God loves you so much that He extends this rope to you. And the rope is called grace. And it is 1,001 feet long. And if you respond to His grace, we are created to receive His grace. You wrap yourself in His grace and you repent and you place your faith and trust in Him. And He will grant forgiveness and healing to your life. This promise is for all. It's for you. It's for your children. And it's for all who are far off. Praise God for the gift of His grace. And the gift of His promise, the Holy Spirit. So we're going to pray. And, and as we pray in just a moment, there's going to be a song of response. And I realize maybe you're laying in bed watching this. Or, or maybe you're in your living room or you know wherever you might be. And you're listening to this. And here's what I would encourage you to to just in this, in this next little bit of time we have, that you'll just worship the Lord. And that maybe if you're here again, cling to the promise of God. He's faithful. He's faithful. He delivers. He doesn't psych His children out. He delivers. He's faithful. Rest in that. Celebrate that. Worship that. And not only that, that if there's areas of our lives that we haven't yielded fully to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we're quenching or or squelching the work of God, that we would repent of those things and rest in His grace and be empowered to be a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that maybe you're listening in and you're like, you know what, I don't have a relationship with the Lord. My encouragement to you is that you would, in this moment, acknowledge that Christ is the Messiah. That Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. And that you would respond to His grace by acknowledging your sin. Acknowledging that it was your sin that Christ died for in that cross, along with everybody else's. And that you would repent, change a, have a change of mind and thinking and direction, and turn to King Jesus and the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for those who are far off. So, even in this time, perhaps today is the day of salvation and you wouldn't put it off anymore, but give yourself to Christ 
and receive the promise, the gift of his spirit and his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. God, thank you for all that you showed and revealed to us in your scripture. That Christ ultimately at all points to you. You're our only hope. You are the Messiah. You are the one who loved so much that you came, lived a perfect, sinless life, crucified on Passover as the one true Passover lamb, the only one without spot or blemish, because that's what it took. You shed your blood on that cross. You were placed in a tomb and you resurrected from the dead. As the psalmist said, the Holy One did not see corruption. You're the only one. You're the only one. And so, Father, I pray that we would find ourselves grateful, humbled, and responsive to your Spirit's work in our lives. And, Father, we pray that you are honored in every way. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.